Hama Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Kieran Mulvaney will join us to discuss Great White Bear. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the polar bear is a creature of some renown, spending its life on drifts of Arctic ice. Its existence is at once fierce yet highly precarious, and indeed, it has an existence that is threatened by changing environmental conditions. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Kieran Mulvaney. Mr. Mulvaney is the author of At the Ends of the Earth and the Whaling Season, and he's written numerous articles on the Arctic and Antarctic, as well as traveling there. His latest work, The Great White Bear, A Natural and Unnatural History of the Polar Bear, explores this topic for a uh, general audience. Mr. Mulvaney, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, since uh, I think this really is a, a very fascinating book you've written about uh, the great white bear, uh, the polar bear. Why did you decide to tackle this uh, subject? As you noted, you know, I've, I've written a fair bit about the Arctic and indeed the Antarctic. I always had a, a particular interest in the polar regions. And I was actually working, also doing some logistical work as well, and was helping a pair of explorers who were aiming to become the first people to make it to the North Pole across the sea ice of the Arctic Ocean in summer. Most expeditions do it in the spring. And the first attempt to do so had to be abandoned, partly because they got caught in this constant eddy of ice flows off the Russian coast, but also because they kept being stalked by polar bears. They had two or three separate instances in which they had to, you know, uh, chase off polar bears with flares, and it was obviously just a very dangerous region. And we started talking quite a bit about the bears, and, and I realized that the, they're, they're known as icons, but there's really not that much out there in terms of popular information about what makes a polar bear a polar bear. And... They're really fascinating animals uh, uh, in and of themselves outside of all the, the issues related to climate change. And so, so I really wanted to, to add to the bibliography of polar bears. The book uh, takes a view of uh, following um, two bears through their uh, typical lifestyle. Why did you decide to choose that? Uh, that sort of came almost by accident in that it seems to be a good way. I thought the opening, there's a prologue, and then the opening chapter talks about how polar bear mothers create dens in snowdrifts and, and give birth to, to their, their cubs in snowdrifts. And that seemed a good device with which to just talk about the description within the snowdrift. And initially that was my plan, was to just talk about it, as, as, use it as a narrative device for that part of that chapter. And then it was my, you know, talking with my editor who felt that it would make a good narrative thread to come back to at various points throughout the course of the book. And I think it, you know, it helps kind of create a, a, a narrative in that. So as well as talking about the different aspects of polar bears' lives, there's also now a kind of temporal thread that runs through it. Earlier, what is it really that makes a polar bear a polar bear? Well, many things. I mean, they are in a very short space of time. They only evolved from grizzly bears approximately 200,000 years ago, which is nothing, of course. In that relatively short space of time, they have become supremely adapted to the Arctic environment. They've become very specialized species. Um, in the same way, you know, they're the newest member of the bear clan. The oldest species, the panda, is similarly 
very specialized for its environment. Most of the rest are generalists, and then you've got the newest members, very specialized. They are so supremely well adapted to the Arctic that notwithstanding the fact that the Arctic is an extraordinarily cold environment at many times, their biggest difficulty is not keeping warm, but keeping cool. Uh, they have a good thick layer of blubber. They have, perhaps counterintuitively, black skin to help trap the warmth and attract the warmth. Their hair is, uh, each of their hairs in their, in their coat is hollow to trap air and um, help keep them warm in that respect. They are clearly adapted for walking on the sea ice and for hunting seals. Their front forepaws are massive. They can be about 12 inches across. Part of the reason for that is so they can act as snowshoes. It also helps them swim. Uh, it's also very good uh, for, for whacking seals on the head. And they have these long, lengthy necks and heads relative to other bear species that enable them, again, to swim and also to poke their heads down seal holes. So every uh, different element of them is supremely well adapted to the Arctic environment. And this is, as you mentioned, just a relatively recent adaptation, evolutionary speaking. Yeah, yeah, only a couple of hundred thousand years ago, as, as DNA evidence suggests. In fact, it appears that a, a population of grizzly bears during the last great ice age uh, somewhat became uh, isolated from other grizzly bears, and over the course uh, you know, of the ice age, uh, a num- number of them sort of set out and very rapidly began to adapt as polar bears. And in fact, there's interesting, there's kind of like a rump subpopulation of grizzly bears off Alaska that is the last remnant of those isolated grizzlies, that is actually, its DNA is actually closer to polar bears than to other grizzly bears. And polar bears and grizzlies are still able to, uh, to interbreed when they encounter each other sometimes. So they're, very, they're essentially very specialized, rapidly adapting grizzly bears. Oh, wow, so that, that is their closest relative, is the grizzly. Yes, yes, by far. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, they have all these uh, very specialized adaptations, uh, and again, as, as you mentioned, it's really due to their, their environment, and part of this book is also talking about the unique environment uh, of the Arctic. I wonder if you could talk about that as well. Yeah, it was very important for me to, to talk about as much the Arctic environment, and particularly the Arctic sea ice environment, as it was about polar bears. You can't really understand polar bears unless you understand that environment. I think, you know, many people, if they know anything about polar bears, it's that, oh, yes, aren't they in danger because the ice is disappearing. But why is, why, does, why is that a problem for polar bears? And they are very specifically adapted, particularly to hunt um, ice-dependent seal species, specifically the ring seal and bearded seal. Um, these are species that have themselves evolved to take advantage of the ice. The ring seal in particular has these claws at the end of its flippers that it uses to scratch holes in ice flows in order to keep breathing holes open so that it doesn't have to, you know, hunt for cracks in the ice. It can just keep its own breathing holes open. Fantastic adaptation for, for ring seals, and has enabled them to, to have a particular niche in the Arctic environment for a long time. But it also means that there's a collective target on their backs, because if you're a very smart polar bear, and most polar bears are very smart, then instead of wandering around aimlessly looking for cracks in the ice, you can just look for one of these ring seal breathing holes and, and wait there or, or attack the ring seals that are waiting there. So bad news for them, really. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sort of been a co-adaptation that's gone on between uh, the seal and the, and the polar bear. The seal has just become, I mean, it would have been, you know, essentially predator-free until the polar bear came crashing over the horizon. Its adaptation simply has been caution. Uh, there are a couple of, I mean, it's very interesting to look at the difference between, say, Arctic uh, ice-dependent seals and, and Antarctic seals. In the Antarctic, you know, you're not supposed to wander up to a seal and pet it because of Antarctic Treaty regulations, but you could and it would just lie there and look at you. Arctic seals are completely different. They're constantly looking around in a state of constant agitation if they're up on the ice. 
And also, as they approach these breathing holes from below, they, they're very cautious again. They kind of circle around a couple of times. They have a little look up. They're not too sure. And they emit a stream of bubbles before they come up to the surface, you know, to break the ice on the surface of, of the breathing hole. And uh, as one researcher I spoke to believes that what that does is, you know, it helps break the ice. It helps make it clearer and helps make it, you know, apparent before they actually poke their heads up, whether there is, in fact, a polar bear there waiting for them. So the big adaptation in terms of ring seals is just a considerable degree of caution. Mm. This is their primary uh, source of food for the polar bears. Yes, it is. They're the only truly solely carnivorous bear. Most bear species, there are eight uh, extant bear species. Most of them are generalists, although they may specialize in one area or the other. The panda is essentially a herbivore. The polar bear is a carnivore, but as uh, one leading researcher has called me, he says they're not so much carnivores as lipovores. They don't even really eat the meat of seals. They really eat their blubber. They tear away at first at the blubber and swallow that, and then sometimes they'll just daintily pick the last bits of it off rather than eating the meat. And the reason for that is that to effectively absorb the proteins in meat, you need a lot of liquid water. And particularly during the winter months, there's a lot of water around, but not that much of it in liquid form. And so for them, it's much more efficient to just swallow the fat, swallow the blubber, and they're very good at, at that. And, and that's one of the things to consider in terms of the polar bear's future without sea ice and without ice-dependent seals is that you know, there's nothing equivalent that they could eat on land that, the, that is equivalent to what they get from uh, eating the blubber and fat of uh, seals. As you mentioned, that there's this sort of diminishing of the Arctic ice, and how are they adapting? Are they moving their terrain, or what's happening in terms of uh, how they're trying to adapt to the diminishing of Arctic ice? Well, there's some indications. You know, they're very, very, very smart animals, and individual polar bears have shown signs of behavioral adaptation. For example, those, some of those that have been forced to spend longer ashore because of the sea ice retreating more rapidly or, or melting sooner or forming later, uh, there have been observations of polar bears uh, eating snow goose eggs or myrrh eggs. And there have also been anecdotal reports of increased amounts of cannibalism in polar bears. The problem is as much as they can adapt behaviorally, they can't adapt energetically. They're still just one polar bear essentially eliminates all the eggs in, in a snow goose colony, for example. So there's just nothing to, to replace what they have there. So what is happening is simply, and certainly in some populations, they're just not able to adapt to the rapidity of the change. Um, there have been observations of polar bears having to swim for such long periods to try and reach the ice because they still have that instinct in them to get to the ice that they drown, or they certainly at the very least lose a great deal of their body weight with the amount of time that they've had to swim. One female was tracked swimming for nine days trying to reach the sea ice. One population in the Hudson Bay, which is at the southern end of the range of polar bears, is the one for which researchers are most concerned. It is declining. The bears themselves are becoming smaller on average, and females are finding it harder to have enough energy to give birth. Um, and as a consequence, you know, that population is declining, and, and researchers are very concerned about the, the, the future. Hmm. So it's, it's really looking as if their number is dwindling. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are, for management purposes, not necessarily for genetic accuracy, there are considered to be 19 subpopulations of polar bears. Uh, of those, there just isn't enough information, about seven or eight, to, to ascertain their status. Another three are stable. One very small one is increasing ever so slightly. The rest are, are known to be in decline, and that's expected to become more severe. And it could be that the seven or eight that we don't know anything about are also in decline. We, we just simply don't know. 
the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, polar bears are creatures of the sea ice. They cannot be creatures of the tundra. They cannot be creatures of the forest. Given enough time, they perhaps could be, but given the rapidity of the change, they can't. A study that was conducted at the request of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service a couple of years ago estimated that there's about an 80% chance that at least some populations of polar bears will become extirpated by the middle of the century. There's, I think it's widely considered by most researchers that under the present scenario, if we continue with business as usual, there will probably be, by the end of the century, just a rump population of polar bears off northeast Canada and northwest Greenland. Oh, wow. How are humans contributing to this, both in terms of their decline and in terms of trying to help their conservation? Simply, there is, appears to be a very strong and linear relationship between temperature increase and sea ice decline. Sea ice, Arctic uh, Ocean sea ice, particularly summer sea ice uh, extent, is declining approximately 11% per decade. The four years in which summer sea ice extent was at its least are 2007, 2008, 2009, and 2010. There is a very strong link between what's happening with sea ice and with temperature increases. So essentially, um, we need to turn the temperature down. We need to stop burning as many fossil fuels as we do. We need to take strong and rapid remedial action, bearing in mind that there's also going to be a lag effect, of course, that even if we stop now or reduce the amount that we were emitting now, there's still a large amount of carbon dioxide is going to uh, stay in the atmosphere for a long period and continue to have an impact. And, you know, that's something that obviously we as individuals can do. You know, we all know the things that we can do to try and use less energy, whether it be turning the lights off or not, you know, leaving them on less or turning the heat down a little or driving less. Um, but ultimately also it's going to require governmental action. Uh, in terms of specifically with regard to polar bears, there are uh, entities that are doing their best to fund researchers who are trying to get as much information as we possibly can about polar bears to establish exactly what is happening with them and with their populations. But really, the vast majority of these researchers are very pessimistic at the moment uh, in order to protect polar bears. We have to protect the Arctic uh, marine ecosystem, and the problem with that is, is simply climate change. How is the uh, rest of the ecosystem uh, faring with regards to uh, the global climate change? Well, it's going to be an interesting, it's going to be quite a profound change to the Arctic marine ecosystem. And there are a number of different, you know, you would think, for example, uh, that the ring seals the polar bears prey on would be popping champagne corks underneath the ice as a, as a sort of polar bears going, but they are ice dependent themselves. They need the ice to haul out on and make dens on. If they respond to temperature increases, if the snow melts earlier, for example, then their, their snow dens may melt before their pups are ready to, to enter the environment. Uh, so that's a problem for them as well, that because uh, sea ice, even though it is made out of salt water, is actually a little bit fresher than the water on which it floats. As that melts, there's a greater amount of fresh water on the surface the Arctic Ocean, and so that affects the ecosystem, and marine algae are, are being replaced by more freshwater algae. Um, Ice-dependent species such as walrus, such as bowhead whales, uh, they're going to suffer, but other species are going to benefit. Humpback whales, for example, uh, orcas, killer whales, um, other whale species may benefit from having you know, greater uh, open ecosystems in the Arctic. It's just going to be a very profound transformation and a very rapid one as well. So really, it's just because of the intertwined nature of it all. It's hard, almost hard to predict. Well, there are, that's, that's exactly correct. I mean, there are all kinds of different elements that, you know, you, we, we might not think about and then think, oh, yes, well, of course, that's going to lead to that. And so as a consequence, that species is going to do better. I mean, the one thing that we can say is, with some certainty is that there are particularly four ice-dependent mammals for which there are particular concern, and that is the ring seal, the bearded seal, the walrus, and the polar bear. And then beyond that, of course, throughout the rest of the ecosystem, there are going to be transformations. But we do know that those ice-dependent 
what about human populations living near the Arctic? Well, it's interesting. There, for those populations that not very many hunt polar bears, so, I mean, there are some, but there's not that much. Uh, the biggest problem is going to be for those Anupiat and Yupik um, in, in Alaska and uh, for Inuit in Canada that hunt bowhead whales. Uh, for them, bowhead whaling is a very important part of their culture, of their tradition, of their life, really. And that's going to become increasingly difficult. And I've had the opportunity in the past to, to visit a number of native villages in Alaska, not in Canada, and speak to uh, some of these natives. And, you know, they themselves will tell you that there are big, profound changes in, in the weather. And one of the big problems for them is it's becoming a lot more dangerous to go out and hunt whales because they will go out onto the ice themselves and camp out on the ice and wait for these bowhead whales to come by. Their ice camps are breaking up earlier as, as the ice flows break. They're having to travel over more open water, which is much more dangerous for them. And the whales themselves are becoming hard to reach. So it's certainly affecting the entire culture of uh, some of these coastal uh, Arctic peoples. The Arctic, of course, is an international area. How well are uh, international groups sort of uh, collaborating in terms of looking at these issues? Well, I think international organizations are working quite well. International governments are certainly talking to each other. There's a small number of, of governments involved directly in the Arctic, of course. It's essentially Canada, Russia, Norway, Denmark, uh, the United States. And they have, you know, different and conflicting views and priorities. And the problem is that they don't all necessarily, although in principle, might say, oh, well, it's terrible what's happening. It's more of an opportunity for some governments, and certainly for a lot of companies, um, not least the opening up potentially of the Northwest Passage through Canada and the uh, northern sea route above the uh, northern coast of Russia is, you know, is creating all kinds of mouth-watering opportunities for some folks in terms of both further oil exploration, for example, and also for shipping routes. And so a lot of the discussion has been not so much just about what do we do to prevent this, but okay, when this happens, are these going to be international waters, the national waters, who has jurisdiction, who's, who benefits? And unfortunately, quite a lot of the discussion is on that level. So really sort of staking their claim in a way. Yeah, you're precisely right, yes, indeed. In fact, the Russians uh, a few years ago actually even, you know, dropped a, a weight with a Russian flag on it down by the North Pole as a sort of statement of intent. So, yeah, very much, very much a, a little bit of jockeying for position and staking of claim, yes, very much. Well, given uh, all the forces going on uh, up in uh, the Arctic, what do you think really is the, the prospect, the future for the, uh, the polar bear? Well, under current scenarios, uh, it's extremely grim. It's a very interesting situation in that polar bear is presently listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, and there's a petition from uh, several environmental organizations for it to be listed as endangered. And it really is an interesting test case because it still occupies this entire range. Its numbers globally are approximately, that have been approximately the same. And yet there is essentially a consensus that its habitat is disappearing and is starting to disappear at an ever faster rate. Under present scenarios, if we continue to emit, burn fossil fuels and emit carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases at the rate at which we are emitting them, their future is very bleak indeed throughout the vast majority of their range. And under present scenarios, unless we do something, uh, unless we do make the changes that need to be made, we'll be looking at a very small population of polar bears indeed by the end of the century and perhaps even before that. People are interested in maybe seeing what they could do to help or maybe just getting more information. Uh, is there any particular source you would suggest going to? Yeah, I always recommend a website called polarbearsinternational.org. Um, it's, it's a great little organization, Polar Bears International. It's entirely volunteer. There are no paid staff, and they're very good. They have all kinds of great fact sheets and information. 
about polar bears, and they also do a great job of, of funding researchers to go out um, and study polar bears and of getting, uh, being able to get kids and other people out to see polar bears in the wild. They're a really great resource, polarbearsinternational.org, and, and they're the ones that I always point people to. All right, very cool. Just any final words regarding uh, your book, The Great White Bear? I hope that people, if they have the opportunity to get it and, and read it, I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to do is, and obviously we always talk about climate change with polar bears and justifiably so, this it, it isn't one of those books. I don't like being the kind of person who writes books that, that demand that people spend $25 to read about how they're screwing up the planet. I think, too, the, you know, the, the vast bulk of it is about polar bears. And um, one of the things that I hope to convey with it is, is just how remarkable polar bears are as species. And I hope that people, if they get the chance to read it, will come away realizing what remarkable species they are. They really are a remarkable uh, creature. And uh, the book, again, is called The Great White Bear, A Natural and a Natural History of the Polar Bear. Uh, Mr. Mulvaney, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. All right, you're just listening to Mr. Kieran Mulvaney talking about his new book, The Great White Bear. This is the Grok Science Show. You're listening to FM. We'll be right back.
It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Polar Explorer or Equatorial Sloth. So, for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them more as a Polar Explorer or an Equatorial Sloth, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Mr. Mulvaney, ready to play the game? I sure am. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Polar Explorer or Equatorial Sloth. Uh, it's the actor Charlie Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> He's a polar explorer and beyond. I'm not even sure he's actually limiting himself to this particular planet, in fact, actually, where he's going right now. So, um, uh, I think at least within his own mind, he's gone to places that, that, that many of us have never been and probably don't want to go. So, <laughs> definitely polar explorer. Uh, I would certainly agree. Maybe even transcended into a different universe. <laughs> <laughs> it's really possible. <laughs> All right. Uh, number two, uh, it's uh, Oprah Winfrey. Ooh. Well, you've got to give it to... Well, I'll tell you what. I'll preface this by saying that she, I, I, didn't, I do know, happen to know that she did have the opportunity to go to Antarctica, but, but actually uh, uh, turned it down, I believe, for uh, various reasons. So she, she gets a demerit for that. But I think, um, you know, especially con conscious of the fact I'm talking to a Chicago audience, that I think in terms of media empires that she's visited and places that she's gone to, at least within a media realm, she is the polar explorer of polar explorers. All right. Very good for her, then. <laughs> Uh, all right, number three, it's uh, the famed explorer Jacques Cousteau. Oh, well, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, the, the ultimate of polar explorers. I mean, he's been to the polar regions, of course, uh, in, in his time, uh, as well as everywhere else. That's credit for what he's done and what he's inspired so many other people to do in his life. Um, he would have been 100 just last year, in fact. And, uh, you know, I think he's inspired a lot of people, so very much polar explorer, no equatorial philosophy. Open up the seas for a lot of people there. <laughs> very much, I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number four, Polar Explorer, Equatorial Sloth. It's uh, the golfer, Tiger Woods. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yes, well, that's, that's an interesting one. I suspect, well, I think probably Tiger's problem is that he's been uh, doing a little bit too much exploration. <laughs> um, and so I would think right now he's doing his best to be as much of an Equatorial Sloth as he possibly can be. He'll have some nice um, recovery time there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precisely. All right. Uh, okay, finally, number five, uh, Polar Explorer, Equatorial Sloth. It's uh, the new mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. Oh, well, yeah. That, I mean, be it as a, a White House aide or, or Illinois representative or Bank of the White House. Um, yeah, that's the man. I mean, can you imagine? I just can't imagine Rahm Emanuel being slothful even when he's sleeping, really. It just doesn't <laughs> seem like he, he has it in, in his DNA, does he, really? It's not even one, one of his uh, switches, I think. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, uh, well, Mr. Mulvaney, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around playing the game. And again, of course, talking about your new book, which is called uh, The Great White Bear, A Natural and Unnatural History of the Polar Bear. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. All right, it's our pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, this is Brock Science Show. I've been Charles Lee. And I'm Elise. And we'll be back into more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to see us, you can do so uh, on the web. Our web address is www.grox.net. You can also email us at science at grox.net. And we're on Facebook. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>